Maria, welcome to First Up. It's Rahina, Monday the 22nd of August, Corner Truebridge Aho. Coming up, a little Godwit's unusual travel patterns. The head of a rest home forced to shut its doors after 89 years due to the country's staff shortage will join us. Nelson's MP Rachel Boyack will join us on the extent of the damage caused by last week's flood and bad news there is more rain forecast today. And we hear from the brother of wrongfully imprisoned man Alan Hall as he applies to be compensated for spending 19 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. You know, he's lost grandparents, uh, he's lost his mum. All of these Christmas parties, birthdays, all of these events that make up far now, Alan has missed out on. Maria, welcome to First Up. Hope you've had an excellent weekend. I'm Nick Trubridge. I'm back in for Nathan today. We're going to begin in the United States of America, where uh, in California they're ripping up their lawns for climate change. We'll get to that soon, but first basketball legend Kobe Bryant's wife is in court. Joining me for more on these stories is uh, Anna Burns Francis. Morena. Morena, Nick. How are you this morning? Really well. Can't complain. Good weekend. Uh, Let's start with Kobe Bryant, Uh, his widow, of course, suing emergency services, who who took and shared photos of her husband's helicopter crash. What's the latest on that? That seems highly irregular, doesn't it? Yeah, although you could argue, and I think this might be an attempt at a defence, that there should be photos taken to preserve a crash site before emergency services leap in and try and find what they can. Mm. Uh, But we did see Vanessa Bryant herself take the stand uh, in this court case against the Los Angeles County for invasion of privacy. Now, Kobe Bryant um, and the 13-year-old Gianna and seven others were killed in that crash in January. Vanessa Bryant has since learned that sheriff's deputies, who were some of the first on the scene, and the firefighters, have since been sharing photos of bodies at the crash site. Now, the sheriff's deputies shared them with a mate at a bar. Firefighters have been sharing them at a banquet gala. Pretty gruesome content of a social occasion. And Mrs. Bryan is obviously concerned that if they've made it that far, at some point it'll be all over social media. But these photos, if you're looking at a defence, they were taken on personal cell phones. The employees concerned have already put themselves in a pretty difficult position. One of them says he doesn't even remember being there. He's since changed his mind and does remember being at this gruesome crash scene of a famous basketballer. Uh, Another person removed the hard drive from his laptop in an attempt to hide whatever he might have had on it. Now, normally a case like this would go to settlement, but of course, Mesa Bryan is worth millions of dollars. And for once, this is not about the money. You've got to wonder how showing your mate a photo of that at the bar is going to fly in court, don't you? Um, or if you at least be discreet about it because they were yeah. dobbed in by another person at the bar who saw what they were doing. Oh, jeez, what a situation. Uh, let's change tack slightly um, because this is a fun, the governor of Texas shipping busloads of migrants to D.C. and New York. Uh, there's a little bit more to this, though, isn't there? Why, why is this happening? Well, Greg Abbott making a name for himself with just another stunt. So he's offering recently arrived migrants from across the border from Mexico a free bus ride out of the state. Now, he's putting this border issue onto so-called sanctuary states. That's places like New York. So here in New York, there's a rule that says every person without shelter must be offered a place to stay. How convenient for Greg Abbott, because this also allows him to draw attention to the migrant crisis 
Texas says it should be pointed out being accused of relaxing its border patrols a bit recently, perhaps in an attempt to prove the size of the problem, because these are families, you know, that have, they've been traveling for months, often most of it on foot. It's really hot. It's the middle of summer here. It's really dangerous conditions. And, you know, if you're offered an air-conditioned bus ride to a city that provides housing and food and a helping hand, well, of course you're going to accept it. The problem is that Thousands of people are pouring into New York and D.C., 7,000 into Washington alone since April, and now New York is running out of beds. This week, there were just 19 rooms free in a city that has more than 10,000 rooms allocated for those in need of a bed for the night. Meanwhile, in Utah, we know that's a conservative state as well. They, a judge there has allowed transgender girls to play sport. But it's it's for now. It could change. Yeah, that's the key right there for now. Isn't yeah. that generous? A child is allowed to play sport. I know. Look, it seems so. Ban- yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Every day in America, there's something yeah. that you just I, think. Did I I'm, hear that I'm, right? I'm reading these questions <laughs> thinking, really? Yes. Has the producer got that right? Is this the right way around? Well, yes, because at the moment there is a ban on transgender school students taking part in sport in Utah. It is under a legal challenge at the moment. But it means any child identifying as transgender may have to appear before a state commission to decide if they can compete. Utah can thank its Republican lawmakers for this. It does come after some Utah parents filed a complaint that their kids got beaten at sport by a girl. They assumed, obviously, that this was not possible, giving a lot of credit to their children's sporting prowess and demanded an investigation which found the school went back and looked at the child in question. She had been registered as a girl since kindergarten. Look, worth pointing out that unfortunately this is just one of a growing number of outrageously stupid complaints to the high school sports board, including one that a teenager simply had to be lying about who she was as she didn't look feminine enough. And it's oh a growing my. trend in America. My, Utah is oh one of these states. Texas, West Virginia and Indiana are all trying to stop transgender children playing sport. There's little things that sort of make you feel happy to live uh, in NZ sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, Utah yeah. has four children that are yeah. transgender in the entire state. Is there nothing more important? I don't know. Yeah, pretty wacky. Uh, very quickly, this uh, thing about Californians ripping up their lawns. What's happening there? Yeah, well, they're doing it for the money, ostensibly for the environment. But isn't this how we actually get action on climate change when the alternative doing nothing finally becomes too expensive? Here we are in California. The cost of watering your lawn outweighs the return for turning it back into desert landscaping. They've been in a continuous drought for so long, it's now called a mega drought. Worth pointing out, grass is the largest irrigated crop in all of America. So California is offering its residents thousands of dollars, thousands, tens of thousands for ripping up the lawn and replacing it with desert plants. And it seems the concept's finally cottoning on. Applications jumped fourfold in July. But in case you're wondering, Nick, no, you cannot put fake grass down because that doesn't count as saving the environment. I was going to say, that's the hack. Oh, well. Hey, uh, thanks, Anna. Anna Burns-Francis joining us there from New York. We're going to go straight to Europe uh, where there's been car, uh, uh, car bombing in Moscow uh, taking out the daughter of Ru- one of Russian Vladimir Putin's closest allies. Joining me now from Germany is Nita Blake-Person. Morning, Anita. Guten Morgen, Nick. Let's start with this uh, car bombing. What do we know about this attack, first of all? 
So it took place uh, overnight or on Saturday evening. The woman who died was Daria Dugina. Um, she was heading home from a cultural festival. She'd been attending with her father, Alexander Dugina, and he's been described as Putin's brain or even sometimes like a modern-day Rasputin. He is an author, a longtime advocate for a new Russian empire and is seen as a key influence behind the Kremlin. So it was his car which was bombed. His daughter and him were supposed to be traveling together. He made last minute plans to go elsewhere um, and uh, she has died. Daria herself recently appeared on state TV to support Russia's invasion of Ukraine and both her and her father are subject to uh, American and British sanctions. Do we know who's responsible? Any connection to the Ukrainians? Well, as of yet, we don't know, but a spokesperson for Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky has denied any responsibility for the incident. Obviously, it does come against the backdrop, though, of the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, and Russian nationalists have been quick to blame Ukraine. Uh, we don't yet know if anyone's going to assume responsibility. But just a couple of updates on the situation in Ukraine uh, as that's unfolding still. Russia's defence ministry says that it's destroyed an ammunition ammunition depot in Ukraine's Odessa region. And that comes ahead of uh, Ukraine's actual Independence Day on Wednesday this week. So Vladimir Zelensky has urged Ukrainians to be vigilant before Wednesday, saying we must all be aware that this week Russia could try to do something particularly ugly, something particularly uh, vicious. So a bit of a grim reminder of what they're facing. In the meantime, there are parts of Europe obviously dealing with drought. Uh, It's starting to take its toll. It's been a long, hot summer. What sort of problems are starting to crop up? Oh, we might have lost Nita there. That's okay. We will go to our next story and hopefully get Nita back up on the line at some stage. Uh, right, this is, and, and now this is a story, this is the story of the morning, I think. Uh, an adventurous little bird who always comes home, but only after taking a few unexpected detours. Young 4RBBY is a godwit, and usually you'd find them flying back from Alaska at this time of year. But this little bird has returned to New Zealand after spending five months in West Papua. And it isn't the only time it's taken the scenic route. I spoke to Massey University Associate Professor Phil Batley about who, where 4BBY has been, and uh, he's been looking at the travel patterns. This is what he had to say. So it's four red, blue, blue, yellow, and that's just a code that explains the colour bands she has on her legs. So this is, means that if we're out in the field and we see a bird with these bands, we can recognise this is who it is. And tell us why she's, why she's so interesting. Well, she's an amazing bird. She's interesting at the moment because she's just arrived back in New Zealand after an attempt at a migration. So we know quite a lot about her. She was a juvenile in 2019, so born that year, and we put a satellite tag on her at a Manutu estuary. And soon afterwards, she left, which we expected she would do, and took a trip right around the bottom of the North Island, round East Cape, and settled in Matarangi in um, Coromandel. Uh, spent the next year there. Last year, took off on a great big journey up to the Arctic, but this year did the same thing, but uh, bailed out just north of Papua New Guinea and then spent the next five months on the south coast of West Papua. And it was just a few days ago, she decided time was right to come back and headed off and just arrived probably two nights ago. Can you tell us about some of the distances she's covering? So she's had quite a a journey. So last year, she did the classic New Zealand Godwit thing of flying direct up to Asia, which was 10,800 kilometres. That was all, you know, right on plan, right on the schedule of what we thought a bird should do. 
then it got interesting. Normally they fly out across the Pacific Ocean and head up to Alaska. She instead went overland across Russia and ended up in eastern Russia and spent the entire summer up in Russia, probably hanging out with, with birds of a different subspecies that live in Australia normally. So that was about another 5,000 kilometres. We didn't know what she was going to do then. Would she travel back with those birds? But went eastwards across the Bering Straits in August to Russia and then in September took off and came all the way down, not to New Zealand though, to Australia. So that was almost 12,000 kilometres, 11,800, and then a little dash back across the Tasman later on. This year, because she hasn't gone as far, she only went up as far as uh, West Papua. That was about 7,700 kilometres, and the trip back was 4,800. So she's only done 10,600 kilometres this year compared to 32,000 last year. So it's been pretty easy going. Only 10,800. I know. (laughs) And she arrived home on Wednesday night, Tuesday night. Right? Tuesday night, probably. So yeah. she's more than capable of battling the horrendous wind and storm conditions we've had, well, around Auckland recently. Well, she, prob- she probably benefited from them, actually, because she was coming from Australia, or past Australia, coming down this way. So, you know, wind systems that are coming down, bringing warm tropical air down, probably are quite favourable for a bird coming that direction. So it could be she's had quite a nice, uh, quite a nice journey. Now we don't know exactly where she's got to yet. Uh, we've only had one signal from her transmitter since arriving. That was probably in the Manukau Harbour, but she will almost certainly relocate back up to Matarangi sometime in the next week or two. So hopefully we can have some people out there spotting when she comes back to what she now thinks of as her annual um, summer home. So she spent quite a lot of time alone, right? Well, we'd presume so. We would presume there can't be that many uh, godwits up there. However, godwits generally don't migrate when they are young. So when they're one or two or even three years old, they will not migrate, but they'll stay in the non-breeding grounds. So it's entirely possible that on the south coast of Papua New Guinea and West Papua, there are shorebird populations. There might have been other godwits there, but those birds would probably be thinking of that as their place of residence and not have the urge to come back to New Zealand. So... She's really interesting for showing us how widely these young birds might explore the world, explore the flyway, and sort of be aware of places that we don't know that they are aware of. So the other really interesting thing is just how directly she came back to New Zealand. She really knew exactly where she was going to. And the other part of this is she spent a little bit of time off track, off the grid, call it what you like. Is that unusual and and what does it tell you? No, so the thing is these transmitters that, that are on them are solar powered and we just mount them on the on the lower back, a little elastic harness that goes around the, the legs. So it can slip off and they will slip off over time. They're not they don't have these on for life. But they get covered up by the feathers. So the solar power and the solar charging ability goes down when they are just living their normal life and they're covered by the feathers quite a lot. So normally we get periods where we just don't get any signals because the battery power isn't there. Once they're flying their wings are out. This thing is exposed to the sunlight uh, all day. They charge really well, and we get fabulous information. So it's not unusual for us to lose track of them for a week, sometimes even a month, and then for the signal just to come back. Maybe it was sunny, or maybe it was molting or something. So it is a little bit of an unknown with these birds. Sometimes we do lose track, and we don't know, are they still there? Are they still alive? Is their transmitter still on? Or has their transmitter fallen off? And In fact, we have a transmitter on the north slope of Alaska that was on a bird that fell off a year or two ago or last year and uh, in the summer 
came back on again. It's just lying on the tundra, solar panel up, and it gives us false signals from uh, where this bird dropped it last year. Why do this? Well, there's a really interesting species for a start, but more importantly at the moment is that their populations have been going down and there's real concern about a habitat change, global ch- climate change, uh, etc., particularly around the stopover sites in Asia. So the information that we can get from knowing exactly where birds are going will help us understand what are the threats and risks to these birds and how can these be mitigated, how can they be protected, are there sites in Asia or other parts of the world that we don't know about that are worthy of protection. So fundamentally we've got two things, one of which was we're really fascinated in understanding how these birds achieve these migrations, but we're also really interested in making sure that they can keep going. So if we can feed this into conservation action on the ground, then this is really what we'd like to do. That's Massey University Associate Professor Phil Batley. If you like birds, I do, we'll put that full interview up on our website. It's 21 past five. I'm Nick Trubridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, the brother of Alan Hall, who was wrongfully imprisoned for 19 years, says he should receive the maximum allowable compensation, which would be the largest such payout in the country's history. And we hear, hear the latest in the world of fresh produce from Minister of Fruit and Veg, Glenn Forsyth. Where they are standing in the rare. Big ones, small ones, some as big as As we do most Mondays, it's time to head to where the produce is at its most fresh. And of course, that's to the markets with our Minister of Both Fruit and Veggies, Glenn Forsyth. Morena, Glenn. Morena, Nick. How are you? Very well, very well. Can't complain. Uh, let's start with imported fruit um, because it's getting us through the winter. Well, it's getting us through the winter without scurvy, isn't it? So what imports are in, uh, are in, are in good supply this week? Yes, the horticulture industry keeps growing, which is great news. Roughly the past year ending March was $7 billion for what? This doesn't include wine, which is big in itself. But our exports were approximately $4.6 billion, led by kiwifruit and apples. We hear often from our global customers that we and our produce are reliable. This leaves about $2.4 billion for New Zealand fresh fruit and vegetable consumption. However, this doesn't include imports, and we import a lot, especially bananas. And opening this week, some imported fruit in good supply are tropical gold pineapples from the Philippines, Samoan coconuts, fresh dates from California, and new season Australian Afora mandarins. Now, the Afora, they, they come in just right time when our New Zealand Satsumas finish. Vitor, they originated 50 years ago as a marketing company for growers in the Renmark region in South Australia. Vitor are high in quality, and we tried some this morning, Nick. Big in flavour, a little harder to peel than a satsuma, but didn't encounter any pips, so an 8 out of 10 from us. Now, after peeling, break in half and take out the inner line of pith down the middle. Makes for a more enjoyable experience from there when you start eating, eating the segments. Taking the pith. Yes, <laughs> there you go. I, I actually quite like, I, I kind of just munch through the pith. It's okay, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. Hey, silver bead and celery, uh, well, I think they're kind of overrated. Celery you can do a lot with too. And they're kind of all go at the moment. You've been talking to a celery grower. Yeah, we have. I mean, leading the charge down here today is pumpkin, orange, kumara, mushrooms, and those smaller, sweeter, better bites, carrots, ideal for snacking on. What is ballsy, however, two banner groups putting a couple of green vegetables on promotion in winter, and they are silverbeet silver beet, sorry, and celery. Thought we would check in with the young Luke and Jasmine Franklin on that note yesterday. Fifth generation celery growers at Waimalku. I mean, how's that? Fifth generation. His great-great-grandfather, 
started growing celery in Mount Roskill in 1906. About a two- to three-hour horse and cart ride away, he was saying, when delivering to the Auckland markets. Luke and Jasmine, they've had a stroke of luck this year with no gaps in supply, and they grow 12 months of the year. They supply the markets in loose bunch form and also do a Franklin Farm 300-gram bag of celery sticks pre-cut and washed. His favourite way of enjoying celery is Thai-style celery salads. He's been known to uh, sneak down celery sticks with peanut butter too, and he uses the flavourful and healthy leaves as a garnish sprinkled on salads again, soups, eggs, dips and, um, and roasts. We mentioned silverbeet at the top there as well. What would you do with silverbeet? Oh, I love silver beet like it's two veggies in one. We've talked about it before. Love using the leaves in the lasagna. Mm, and, and, yeah. and, and, and lasagna always tastes better the next day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great way to add some uh, some green to your lasagna for sure. I agree, I agree. Um, very briefly, we, we talked about imported fruit, right? Yeah. But in terms of local stuff, what is available as we swing from winter into spring? Oh, well, we're still winter mode, but the New Zealand fruit here mm. is spectacular, and there's lots of it. Too many apples varieties to mention, so let's just say plenty of these. And on fresh pears, there are good supplies of New Zealand pickings. Green kiwi fruit is stretching from one landing bay to another, and high volumes of new season avocados keep rolling in. We can't forget the magnificent in season lemons looking as bright as the sun, and New Zealand naval oranges are hitting their peak. A few things mum and dad did back in the day with apples was placing a whole apple inside a wild duck before stuffing, placing the bird in an oven bag and cooking long and slow. The result was tender, sweet-tasting meat. Another one was core small apples in full centre with chutney, bacon, grease dish, and moderate oven until well-cooked and served with pork. But our favourite, and for a different flavour of stewed mince, was adding grated apple along with the usual vegetables. Grated apple and mince. Just a little bit, yes. Just a okay, bit. okay, I'll <laughs> give it a go. Thanks, Glenn. See you later in the week. Yes, business. Yes, business time. That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. Yes, business. Right, joining us from the business team is Giles. Giles Beckford, of course. Morena. Morena to you, Nick. You know there's nothing you can't do with mints. No, I was going I, I was mean, going to ask you at the top, but grated apple in your mints? Yeah, why not? Well, maybe. Maybe a little squeeze mints. of lemon. I, look, I've, I'm, squeeze of lemon? All the stuff I've I've eaten in student flats over the years, I have to say. And I was going to say... You'd be surprised what's been thrown into mints. Well, and if you have... If, you, if you're fancy and you have... Um, you know, your mints raw, i.e. ta-ta. I, I think they put squeeze of lemon into that, potentially. Anyway. You, it's not a whole lemon, it's just a wee squeeze. Okay. Wee squeeze, yeah. a little taste. Anyway, uh, <laughs> let's let's move on. Uh, let's talk about digitisation, uh, saving or adding billions. Well, what, what does this all mean? It's a, rep- it's a report that's been done for Xero, which is the uh, software accounting uh, company, uh, now largely based in Australia. Uh, but they got NZIA, the Institute of Economic Research, to sort of do a study about how much uh, better would our productivity be if we were you know, fully digitised, if we used the cloud, uh, we cloud computing, all that sort of thing. And some quite astounding figures. The NZIA report says, for us to be as productive as Ireland, which is regarded as the most productive country, um, this is output for the hours worked uh, in the OECD, 
We'd have to work, hang on to your hat, almost another 11 hours a day. Not a week, a day. Not mm. a month, in 24 hours. That works out, we'd have to work 53 hours extra uh, a week to be as productive as Ireland. Even to be as productive as Australia, using this measure, we'd have to work another two and a half hours a day just to match them. It's better uh, than 11 or whatever it was. Well, yeah. yes, but yeah. I mean, I mean, I never figured that we were actually that less productive no, than Australia. They, they, are sh- they are shocking numbers. Yeah, That's right. So the point being that you put a dollar value on that and it's anywhere between about three and a half to six billion dollars a year extra the economy could earn if it was digitized. Yeah, and that was one of the big things when pandemic hit was, well, look, a lot of things we can't do face to face anymore. Uh, are, now's the time to be smart. Now's the time to be digital. Let's go and do it. Uh, it would seem that we didn't do it enough or we haven't gone far enough. So message there to business. If you don't want your workers you know, working all hours that God sends, then you know, if you've got things that you could uh, digitize, go and do it. Mm, yeah, for sure. Hey, gold market manipulators are going up, Jane. <laughs> Tell us this about is, this. This, this, this is, is yeah. This is just a, a story to show that financial markets, as much as you might put your faith in them, they're bent quite often, or can or can be bent. Yeah. This is the head of gold trading, head of precious metals, and the top gold trader at J.P. Morgan. Right, wow. that's one of the biggest in yeah. the world. Yeah. Right. They've just been convicted in a court in the U.S. For, manip- for manipulating the gold market between 2008 2016. There was fraud, a few other things, but there's a, a thing called spoofing. Now, that's where I put in an order to buy gold, and then I quickly cancel it. And then you put in an order to sell gold, and you quickly cancel it. And what it looks like is that the market's quite busy. They're buying and selling all over the place. And, of course, you're doing this to push the price up or push the price yeah. down. Yeah. So we've had this in the past in various <coughs> other markets. The point being, having been convicted, they're going to go to jail. Yep. They're going to go to jail probably for quite a while, but uh, one assumes that their ill-gotten gains, have, uh, if they haven't been salted away, have been sequestered uh, yep. and will be taken off them. Yeah, naughty, naughty. Uh, thanks, Giles. Uh, more from the business team in Morning Report at 10 to 7. With me now from the couch, as we call the RNZ Sports Department, do we? Uh, well, I'm busy. I don't have time to lie around no. and blim and uh, there's a couch watch at, There's a couch at Checkpoint which I sit on yeah. probably too often. But anyway, are we going to talk about bent are things? Are we going to start with boxing? Well, <laughs> well, yeah, let's do that. Uh, it was a, There were strange scenes in this heavyweight, of course, Usyk versus Joshua, where Joshua, well, you tell us about it. Well, uh, yeah, um, he sort of threw his toys at the end of it, really. He was uh, he was annoyed that he lost a, a split uh, decision, really. Uh, I was working yesterday while it was uh, on, but I had someone watching it for me, and they said that um, it was close. Uh, but they gave it to Usyk, and uh, the judges saw it that way also, although it was a split decision. And um, so Usyk is now, because Tyson Fury is a retired more of the undisputed uh, world heavyweight champion, but uh, Anthony Joshua wasn't too happy about it, uh, threw belts into the, mm. into the ring and sort of stormed off. And 
Uh, today at the media conference, he was holding back tears of the Britain. Uh, he says he still has the um, you know the the fight in him to continue and like to have another fight again. Um, but yeah, I mean he's he's just typically upset that he's um, you know he he was sort of the uh, number one there for a few years now and and he's not and. Um, I, I think really he has to go off, fight a few other people perhaps, um, and then come back and have another go at the world title. He, he's a funny case, isn't he? Because I remember when he was sort of, well, coming up for want of a better phrase, and he just looked like he beat Joe Parker, obviously, relatively comfortably, and he just looked like the next big thing, but sort of maybe hasn't had the same level of dominance as we've seen from other heavyweights, perhaps? Yeah, it's um, Tyson Fury calls him a bodybuilder, and when you look at heavyweight boxers, mm. um, you have to be a bit of a brawler. You have to be able to take punches, and you just need to, you know, uh, hold your footing in the ring over 12 or 15 rounds, and just just really take it, and as I say, be a bit of a brawler, and um, you know, swerve body, yeah. you know, all of that sort of thing. And maybe he doesn't have uh, that sort of uh, uh, style. And yeah. you could possibly say that Parker's a little bit the same, also. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, there you, hey, there you go. Black caps are, are, are fairly well. Is, it's the deciding one day of the yeah. Morning? It is this morning. Yeah. I'm actually just looking to see if the toss has been, uh, but I can't find it no, here. Actually, it's no. meant to start at about six, uh, and this is the decider after that first uh, one day loss uh, Friday last week. I sort of thought, goodness, um, they seem out of it. But uh, again, I watched the second one, and they were quite impressive. The Black Caps they battled their way through. It's really difficult batting conditions over there. Mm. Two hundred they scored, which doesn't seem a lot. Uh, New Zealand won the toss and they're going to bowl first. Yep, just saw that. Yeah, yep, so um, that's what the West Indies have done in the first two games. Yep. Uh, but then the, uh, you know, Bolt and Sal, then that came through, ripped off the uh, top order of the uh, West Indies. So this is, this is going to be a good one, really. I'm, I'm Definitely. looking forward to it. They've never won a one-day series in the West Indies, so uh, they're, they're right? aiming for that. Yeah, just, just quickly... Um, 50 overs, you know, after having all this T20 and tests, it just seems to be sitting in the middle and I'm sitting there thinking, goodness, this this 50 overs takes forever. I just wonder whether, you know, does it still have its place there? I'm not too sure. I'm I'm wondering. Hey, for another day, eh? Yep, exactly. See see you soon. Hey, thanks, Barry. Uh, Barry Guy there with our sports news. Right. A rest home that has been in operation for 89 years, you heard that right, is shutting down due to staff shortages. In four months, St Joseph's Home of Compassion Elder Care Facility in Upper Hutt will close its doors for the final time. But co-executive director Chris Gallivan is warning many more rest homes are on the brink of closure and he joins us now. Morena, Chris. Uh, kia ora, Nick. Kia ora. Just tell us about the situation. Uh, you've been there for 89 years. Staff at the moment, obviously, a real issue You've obviously tried to hang on, and it just it's a no-can do. Look, if we didn't have the amazing, amazing senior management staff at the home that we do, that we likely would have closed down um, earlier during the COVID crisis of the last three years. Um, and, and one of the reasons why we're the perhaps the largest in New Zealand um, of the sort of next tier of homes to close, so we're having... 87 beds. Um, there's been a number of 20, 30, 40 bed facilities that have closed over the over the last six months to a year, but we're the first of the larger ones. Why we're the first is that we're probably not the old school model of running elder care homes in New Zealand, and that is that we're a single owner operator as opposed to, you know, other organisations that might have 10, 15, 20 homes and are able to have that 
rather slender uh, card in their back pocket extra to us, which is shuffling staff between homes to cover rosters that are very, very, very thin. Mm. Can you paint a picture of the situation, well, on, on the ground, so to speak, in the actual rest home? Are we talking, you know, not many nurses stretched among multiple patients, uh, dealing with multiple patients each? Yeah, well, yeah, that's exactly right, and that, and it's not actually only registered nurses; it's also caregivers. So we have a full roster of registered nurses is about fifteen, and probably about forty-five uh, caregivers. We have been hobbling along in the last few months with uh, five registered nurses, four of whom were actually senior managers and have the facilities to run, but have sort of just off the. Um, uh, off the uniform and been back on the floor in order to be able to cover those gaps, uh, and and it's very similar story with the with the caregivers. And so what that means is that we have we have a hospital wing, so we have a full capacity um, to right up to seventy one um, the seventy one hospital beds as well as the elder care beds and and also a state of the art dementia wing. The hospital wing that requires twenty four seven care as you'd expect. So we'd normally have um, five shifts a day, two in the morning, two registered nurses in the morning, two in the afternoon, one in the evening for seven days a week, 35 a week. But we've been running on 21 a week, which is just one registered nurse uh, per shift. We haven't moved to what the uh, DHB now, to Fata Order, said that we could, and that is that we could even move to having a remote access, so no registered nurse on the floor, with a caregiver being able to ring one in the case of an emergency. We just think that's just um, not tenable, and uh, people will die if um, if that uh, is put in place, is, is our belief. My understanding, there are some homes in the country that are forced to operate like that. So I think, Nick, one one expert in the sector said to me, this is a, this is a national disaster on the brink of unfolding. And what happens to those residents now? Oh, look, it's terrible, actually. This is just a nightmare for all involved. Uh, those residents uh, have to be, well, they have to be, I'll put it nicely, rehomed, um, not nicely as farmed out across the region, if not across the country. And that is a process that is um, facilitated by Te Whata Ora, um, and they will be working with each of the individual uh, families. Uh, hopefully starting with the hospital and decanting as the Christchurch post-earthquake term that I think we use these days, Mm. um, because that's where the um, need for registered nurses is most acute. But, of course, what we've seen the last few days is um, very anxious and worried families just ringing around in a bit of a panic trying to find a place for their loved one. Yeah, I bet. Hey, terrible situation. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Chris Gallivan there from St Joseph's Home of Compassion. It is 18 minutes to 6. I'm Nick Trubridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, Nelson's MP joins us as the extent of the devastation from the region's floods becomes apparent and we'll hear from the brother of wrongfully imprisoned man Alan Hall as he applies to be compensated for spending 19 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. The professionals of Morning Report are with us after six. That's very soon. And for a quick preview is Corin Dan. Morena.
Good morning. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, we'll have a busy morning this morning getting across the situation in Nelson and Marlborough like yourselves. Uh, so we'll be talking to locals there as well as uh, officials who are dealing with that clean-up. Uh, more weather too on the way, it looks like, uh, later in the week. So we'll get the latest from Met Service and Waka Kotahi about the roads as well. Uh, some politics too with the Prime Minister in Nelson, but we'll also speak to her about the allegations from Gaurav Sharma uh, on Friday and over the weekend, levelled at her, of course, get some political analysis from that. A uh, bit of sport too, the Black Ferns having a very nice win against uh, Australia at the weekend, although Wayne Smith, coach, still wants to see more. Apparently wasn't happy with, what was it, 50-odd nil? Yeah, uh, well, 50 geez. to 5. <laughs> Hey, hey, but but he is a master, so you know what he sees probably goes. I guess. No, well, he's got to get them, uh, got to keep them going, doesn't he? Because they've got to beat those Northern Hemisphere sides uh, come the World Cup. And the and the Black Caps, of course. uh, Yes, underway shortly, aren't they? Absolutely. Uh, Don't miss it. Morning report coming up in oh fourteen minutes. Uh, A man labelled a murderer for thirty six years who wrongfully spent nineteen years behind bars has filed a claim for compensation, which, if accepted, could see the largest such payout in New Zealand history. Alan Hall, of course that's who we're talking about. He was convicted of murdering Arthur Easton in his Papakura family home in nineteen eighty five when Alan was just twenty three years old. But the conviction was quashed in June this year after the Crown conceded that Mr Hall's trial was profoundly unfair and constituted a miscarriage of justice. The spotlight has now turned onto the police and lawyers who help put him behind bars with police, Independent Police Conduct Authority and Solicitor General also investigating the case. Now, yesterday I spoke to Alan Hall's brother, Jeff Hall, who, along with their late mother, fought tirelessly to clear Alan's name. Alan has gone through a great deal. I mean, he, he has been absolutely put through the ringer, through the, uh, you know, from the police, uh, from the Crown Prosecutor, through the judicial system, all the way through, right up to uh, the prerogative of mercy through the Governor-General. He's done everything right, and the complete legal and judicial system has failed Alan completely. And there needs to be some sort of payback to Alan. You know, and we've got justification through the uh, Supreme Court. Um, They have acknowledged that Ellen's gone through a great miscarriage of justice. And I think it's only fair that now that he gets acknowledged. And really, how do you give a man's life back to him? And the only option to the... uh, is through monetary, and I think that's very fair to Alan. Mm. There seems to be, well, I would imagine there's there's quite a strong feeling uh, from yourself, from the rest of your family, from Alan, obviously, and from his legal team, that there ought to be real consideration of effectively paying him the, the highest possible amount. Well, that's right. I mean, look, Alan was put in jail by Callis, Police that changed evidence, they had a deliberate strategy to convict Alan, and that should not happen to an, in a country like ours. And what they've done is just completely wrong in every way. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. And what, what will it mean to him? Because you mentioned his life effectively being, well, so many years of his life effectively being, being taken from him. So what would it mean to him? Yeah, sure. It'll give Alan a chance. Now, he's, you know, he's sat in jail for 19 years, counting on us, his family, uh, counting on lawyers to get him out or to show the truth. And he's had time to think, what does he want? And he's actually got a a plan in place already. You know, before mum passed away, um, she spoke with Alan, so, you know, once you... um, 
you're out and, and if compensation comes your way, make a plan of what you want. And he's, he has that plan in place and he's shared that with me. And I think it's, um, if he is granted compensation, uh, it's a very good plan. It sort of sets him out. He wants to buy a, a home uh, somewhere where he can call home, but he also wants a couple of puppy dogs. And that's all he's ever <laughs> he said. So he just wants to have his little dogs and a home and a little bit of land that he can uh, run his dogs on. All those things, I suppose, that for most of us are just normal and maybe we take them for granted, but for him, he hasn't really had the chance to do it. He's only had, you know, a, a four walls, walls and a door to sit and look at every night and have dreams of what he can do. And uh, hopefully with compensation, he can get to put those in practice. What's the process now, Jeff? Obviously, the claim's been filed. What does it look like now in terms of who it sits with and timeline, I suppose? Yeah, where we are now, the uh, the file has been claimed uh, through the Ministry of Justice, and I believe it has now been put through to the uh, the Minister of Justice uh, for consideration, uh, which normally it would go off to a, a QC or somebody to advise the Minister, but... Um, we have asked for expectation on, on this because basically Crown and the Supreme Court and the Crown Law have already made very clear soundings that Ellen uh, was wrongfully convicted and this was a serious miscarriage of justice in New Zealand. And I think it should be pretty easy for the Minister of Justice to, uh, to make her conclusions on whether Ellen receives compensation or not. What's it like having him home? What's it like having him around? <laughs> different <Yeah. laughs> you know <laughs> uh, adjustment uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a single dad with three kids and uh now i got four <laughs> but ellen's ellen's good he's great you know he he loves family family uh is is at his core uh he needs to be with family uh he's missed out on so much over the years over the generations basically he's he's you know he's lost grandparents uh he's lost his mom all of these Christmas parties, birthdays, all of these events that make up Farnow, mm. Alan has missed out on. He he cannot get those back. And having them out and that, and he's always saying, "Come on, uh, let's let's go here, let's do this." Uh, you no know, family members coming around, and um, it's really good actually. It's good for him. You know, he's trying to fit a lot in yeah. that uh, that that he's missed out on. So and, and yeah, good on him. Yeah, I was going to ask how how does he how does how does he sort of keep himself busy? And I imagine it takes well some time to to readjust to again that oh. life that a lot of us would take for granted. You know, um, it's really hard to be wrongfully convicted and put in jail for all of this time and just labelled a murderer. It has a big effect on you. And Alan has, it's going to take him quite a bit of time to just breathe and feel normal, you know, that I am part of the public again. And uh, he's been conditioned pretty well whilst at the hands of, um, of corrections. And it's going to take him a bit of time to get to get back into it. There is a lot of work to do with Alan. It's not going to come easy, but he is a resilient man. And, you know, he, um, as he says, one day at a time. So, you know, I, I really, uh, I'm there for him. We're just going to uh, support him all the way through. But at the moment, you know, he's actually gone off and brought a drone. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and a video camera and, uh, and a laptop. And uh, he's got these things that he's just dreamt about over the years. That, and, um, you know, he's offline through the park and... Um, 
and having a great great time with it all. Yeah, lovely <laughs> to hear. I guess, Jeff, mm. just finally, what's your your message to, well, the Minister of Justice, the Ministry? Is it really just, please treat us fairly? We just want a fair go here? Well, that is the message that we have asked for 40 years. You know, now I would, if there's anything, I would just ask her to do what she has to do. But Alan's waited a long time. He's waited 40 years, nearly 40 years for this. So please, just just don't let this drag out as long as possible. Make your decision. Jeff Hall there, who is, of course, the brother of Alan Hall. Well, finally this morning, we're going to go to Nelson. The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern touched down last night and will today survey the damage caused by the region's devastating floods. Hundreds of homes have been evacuated due to flooding and uh, and slips, as we know, with some deemed to be uninhabitable. About 100 stricken residents yesterday attended a community meeting to discuss the state of affairs, with Mayor Rachel Reese warning it could take years for the area to recover. Joining me now is the MP for Nelson, Rachel Boyack. Morena. Morena, Nick. How are you doing? Yeah, really well, thank you. Uh, but let's start with where we're sort of at. Are we in the recovery phase? Obviously, more rain is forecast. So are we recovering or are we still, well surviving, dealing with we're, it? We're, we're still officially in the response days, but moving in, across into that recovery phase. Um, the region is still officially in a state of emergency, and uh, today uh, I'll be with the Prime Minister when we when we go to survey some of the damage. Uh, some people have begun the clean-up, uh, but we are still in that phase of actually um, supporting people to get the full assessments on their homes so they, they know uh, what the status of their property is going to be going forward. So how many homes have been, well, written off, uninhabitable, call it what you like? Well, we're still waiting on those final numbers, but we know uh, there are around 483 uh, properties where people were evacuated. At this stage, we're looking at around 20, up to 20% of those properties could be either yellow or red-stickered, which means they've had significant damage, will either be uninhabitable altogether. Uh, so some people, unfortunately, will not be able to go back into their homes, which is devastating for them. Others are going to need significant remedial work, and it's a mix, uh, Nick, of both flood damage but also uh, land slip uh, damage and concern around the property. So some properties are actually, the, the house is intact, but the land um, behind it uh, has caused significant slippage. And so um, it's, a, it's a mix of issues that are affecting the properties here on the ground. And, of course, infrastructure as well, right? Can we be mm. brought up to speed with that? Uh, power, yeah. water, roads, obviously there's the route to Blenheim, which isn't looking great. There's Rocks Road. Yes, so uh, just on the roads, uh, the um, Rocks Road, which is our main um, arterial route around uh, the front of the city. Uh, I know uh, uh, Waka Katahi are working really hard to at least get some access back around Rocks Road, but uh, we'll hopefully have an update in the next couple of days. Uh, the biggest concern is that uh, route um, State Highway 6 between uh, Nelson and Blenheim is currently cut off, and also uh, State Highway 63, which is our back route through the Wairo Valley, is is also um, out, which means uh, we have uh, no roading access across to Blenheim and, and Picton. And so Wakatahi are working very hard to get updates to officials and to residents, um, and it's it's causing 
real concern, I guess, um, and frustration for people who are cut off. But uh, Civil Defence have done a remarkable job of getting uh, supplies into some people who are, who are cut off, including you know food, medication and things like that. So uh, all the officials are working very hard to get at least some access open as soon as we can. In terms of water, there's a, uh, we've had an issue with the uh, roading uh, water supply. So this is for uh, drinking water and uh, one of the main pipes has been uh, cut off that takes the water through to the treatment plant. And so there's a um, a really strong request uh, for residents uh, in Nelson to please conserve water. Uh, they're working very hard to get that fixed, but it does mean we've got some limited supply. Our drinking water is safe to drink, but uh, that that uh, uh, water coming through uh, is, is there's not as much as as we would normally have. So we're asking people to have shorter showers and not hose down, you know, vehicles and things like that. Thanks, Rachel. Rachel Boyack there, of course, MP for Nelson. There will be plenty more on Nelson coming up in Morning Report, so don't miss it. Right, uh, just before we go, a little bit of feedback. Uh, on that heavyweight boxing fight, Anthony Joshua, certainly true, uh, didn't dominate like some of the earlier heavyweights in the day. For example, Lennox Lewis, yeah, what a champion he was, and always seemed like a good chap as well. Uh, another anonymous person has written in compensation of course this is in relation to Alan Hall compensation is good but if it was me I would want revenge well that's of course how some people might feel Uh, Alan Hall of course seeking compensation hoping he gets the full lot and a message to Kitty Allen as well to um, you know tie uh, well to, to make it a quick process please indeed now Nathan a message from Nathan he is okay he writes Whoever invented COVID is dumb. Yeah, indeed, indeed. He'll be back soon, don't worry. Here's Morning Report. Have a great Monday.